0: and Discussions. Pardon me, I'm going to cut to a quick break and I'll be right back with you, but thank you for joining Discussions with Ian Trottier.
1: So
2: Some of the Ecuadorian military. When an investigation was launched, two of the key witnesses died in car accidents before they had a, t- a chance to testify. A lot of very, very strange things that went on around the, the assassination of Jaime Roldos. I, like most people who've really looked at this case, have absolutely no doubt that it was an assassination. And of course, In my position as an economic hitman, I was always expecting something to happen to Jaime, whether it be a coup or assassination, I wasn't sure, but that he would be taken down because he was not being corrupted. He would not allow himself to be corrupted the
1: way we wanted to corrupt him.
0: Okay, that is a sample of what's to come this hour. You've just heard New York Times bestseller, John Perkins, talk about his time Basically, um, monopolizing a foreign land's natural resource. And what John was discussing there was Jaime Rojas, and additionally, a fellow named Omar Torrijos. Both of them were his assignment in Panama. This is the early 1980s. Again, you have joined your host, Ian Trottier, for discussions. And today, we have an incredible show for you. This will blow you away. And... I would highly recommend that you send this link to a friend, to a co-worker, to anybody and everybody that you know, because what we're going to be receiving today in about 10 minutes by being joined by Mr. John Perkins is completely and totally incredible New York Times best-selling author discusses his career associated with the US government's economic colonization of third-world countries using its partnership with a cabal of international banks and corporations The initial 2004 publication of book Confessions of an Economic Hitman spent 70 weeks on the New York Times best-selling list. It's been published in 32 languages and has sold over 1.25 million copies. Economic Hitman, EHMs are highly highly paid professionals who cheat countries around the globe out of trillions of dollars. They funnel money from the World Bank, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, and other foreign aid organizations into the coffers of huge corporations, i.e. Halliburton, Dick Cheney, and the pockets of few wealthy families, i.e. the Waltons, the Bushes, rockefeller who control the planet's natural resources and if you've listened to me before guys i trace this back you'll hear me talk about this i root this back to cecil rhodes and if you don't know who cecil rhodes is google him right now okay you associate diamonds to the de beers that's just a small percentage of that story Okay, Susil Rhodes. The tools include fraudulent financial reports, rigged elections. Hello, Donald Trump. And I'm not kidding when I say that. Look, I don't care who you voted for. The problem is we have a political mess in this country. And we'll be joined at a 6 o'clock hour after 45 minutes with John, by Peter. And Peter's been a past guest on the show. Peter, investigatingtrump.com. Go to it. Peter's been digging deep. J.D. from Fordham. Uh, M.A., I believe it is, from Columbia. Peter's won five Emmy Awards. For his research. For his investigation, which each and every one of us as American citizens need to be doing every single day because our country as we know it is falling apart and investigating goes in to the Ukrainian link to the Russian mafia I mean it's insane what, what Peter's going to be bringing us for about 15 to 20 minutes at the 6 o'clock hour John opens up all new rays of light for us, okay? But these tools that the EHMs, the economic hitmen, use, financial reports, rigged, Friday financial reports, rigged elections, payoffs, extortion, sex, murder. They play a game as old as all fallen empires. And every empire falls. And if you're like me, you you don't want to be part of this one that we're living in right now when it falls because it's going to burn and it's going to crash. Hopefully it's not on our watch. But the fact, the problem, the problem here is this, is that it's going to be on somebody's watch and it's most likely going to be on your child's watch or their child's watch. So let's do something about it. OK, this is an economic hit, man. This is what John brings to show. It's insane. It's incredible. It's incredible. He's also got a more recent version out called The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I've done a little bit of background on John. He's got family roots to the American Revolution. If you checked out my bio, my family roots to Quebec, 1640s from Lyon, France. My family roots have been on this continent for a, a few hundred years as well. But from the French side, my mother's British. So we dig into this, some of this stuff because when we see and see John dedicated, I don't know how many years, a decade, two decades, to being an economic, economic hitman. I mean, behind the scenes, this guy has structured this global economy that we live in today. And fortunately for us, he's coming out and he's saying, hey, there's a better way to do things. He's, if you will, and I don't know if he'd agree with me using the word. We'll find out. He's exposing some of these things. Okay? But multi, multi, multi-layered, um, you know, it, it, <laughs> hard to tell what the tactic is today for this global economy and how they're doing business. But, um, um But uh, nonetheless, we'll be having that here in a few minutes. Um, so, excuse me if uh, let's see, I'm, I was getting a little bit of feedback here uh, from Adrian, and uh, I, I just want to make sure I just want to make sure everything is on point here. So I'm just going to text him and make sure that uh, that he can hear me loud and clear. Um, so last week, uh, last week, Chuck Morris joined us. The Nazi connection to Islamic terrorism is the book he wrote. Um, my audio was bad, and uh, I, I, I apologize for that. Um, so I'm going to be inviting Chuck back on. He's ready to do that show again. But he 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 links uh, he. he he links Nazi, he's got Nazi connections to Islamic terrorism. Um, prior to that, we were very lucky to have F. William Engdahl join us uh, from Germany. Miss Lies and Oil and uh, Oil Wars is the book he wrote. Target China, How Washington and Wall Street Plant a Caged Asian Dragon. It's another one he wrote. And uh, he he uh brought some firepower to the show. So um, you can check those out at iantrotier.com. That's I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R.com slash radio. You can go to the uh, the landing page. Um, So uh, I'm going to cut to a break and try to figure out some of, uh, because it sounds like I've just gotten word that that I'm not very clear. So I'm going to try to to settle, settle the clarity here. So thanks for joining. Discussions. I'm your host, Ian Trottier. Be
1: right back with you. Is or, or, a certain or, uncapped world a science of transformation? Or, my message is winwoodradio.com. Winwoodradio.com. Frightened by the sound of illusions.
0: so i think that's that's better uh just texting with uh uh with Adrian i think we've got a good sound level here uh sounds pretty good on my part we are uh I, i'm just just waiting to field uh John's call and i had checked Phone lines uh, at about uh, 30 minutes ago, and everything seemed to be fine. So, uh, any moment now, uh, John will join us. And uh, there he is. Okay. We'll cut to a break, and uh, talk to you in a moment. <laughs> Now,
1: Your face every single time That I close my eyes That I say your name when the time flies by Goes one minute, minute, two minutes, Then it's three weeks later And I'm still not home Back at the club Try to call your phone It's middle of the night Before I get back home To a hotel room Where you're a million
0: welcome back and I should have on the line with me uh, that should be connected successfully mr. John Perkins John are you there I'm here am thank you fantastic um, so so John uh, thanks for coming on the show and really excited to have you and um, I've given my listeners a quick rundown of a little bit of background on uh on you and your time as a uh an EHM an economic hitman and I think like myself and most listeners were 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 totally uh oblivious to some of these behind the scenes uh mechanisms uh elements of uh arms that run the the machine that drives this this force um, that, that we all kind of live in. Now, um, on my uh, Instagram earlier today, I posted an interesting quote that I had found in association with you, and it goes back to John Adams, 1735, I think it is. There are two ways, he says, to conquer and enslave a nation. One is by the sword. The other is by debt. And listening to a little bit about your uh, experience and your knowledge it's only a matter of time and we got a little bit of flavor of that i think in 2008 and certainly those living in the us in the 1920s who experienced the great depression uh it's only a matter of time that this economy is going to bottom out now you 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 speak you speak amazing because you you kind of deliver your message on a heartfelt level where um, emotions, uh, you, you, uh, for me, when I listen to you, it, it, it becomes emotional. So it speaks to my soul and it speaks to my heart. And, uh, of course, as a member of the human race, it kind of speaks on a defensive mode that I want to protect others that I care about and, 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 and anybody that's being misused and, and, and abused. But but maybe you can just kind of thread in from there and tell us a little bit about how you became um, an economic hitman.
2: Well, yeah, that's, a, that's an easy one. Okay. Uh, I went to business school, and in business school, I was taught that if you want to help poor countries, developing countries, uh, develop and get better off, you invest lots of money in big infrastructure projects, power plants and industrial parks and highways and things like that. And that that helps the economy grow. Uh, and then I would, went in the Peace Corps and I was in Ecuador and I fell in love with Ecuador and it was, it was a very poor country. And so when I got out of the Peace Corps, I was recruited by this uh, consulting firm, Charles T. Maine, who did a lot of work with the World Bank and so forth, that, it, it, exactly doing that, setting up loans to countries to help them build big infrastructure projects. So all my training, and, of course, the World Bank also said, and still says, and so do business schools still say this, that investing lots of money in infrastructure grows the economy. And, in fact, it does, if you measure the economy by gross domestic product, GDP. Uh, but So I saw this and, and went into that business. But it didn't take me too long being in there that I saw that these increases in GDP, which are shown statistically, Uh, we're just helping a very few wealthy families. The the GDP was controlled by a few wealthy families. And as long as they were doing well, the statistics looked good, even though everybody else was was getting deeper and deeper into debt. So, what I would do is get these countries to accept loans from the World Bank or sister organizations, hire our corporations to build these big infrastructure projects. The country never actually ever even saw the money. It went directly from the World Bank or one of its Sisters to, to a bank in Houston or San Francisco or wherever the corporation was located, the Decker or the Halliburton or whoever, and and in in paying off, trying to pay off the interest on that loan, the country had to divert money from education, healthcare, and other social services that were helping the poor. In the in the end, they couldn't pay off the loan at all. But the country had much better electricity, much better infrastructure. It helped a few wealthy families who owned the big industries, the commercial establishments. Um, So the rich were being helped, the poor were getting worse off. And in a way, you know, we see that in the world today. But we've recently discovered that about eight individuals have as much wealth as half the world's population. Well, as long as those eight individuals are doing well, the global economy is going to look real good, uh, regardless of how that other half of the world is doing. And it's true in the United States, now. It's become more and more true here, but it was very true in these developing countries. So at, because I think I'd been on the Peace Corps, I could see the other side of the story. I could, I could relate to those poor people. And I spoke Spanish. I could talk to them. I could understand what was going on. And so I eventually understood that this was a game. This was a deception. Uh, yes, the GDP was growing, but the poor were getting poorer, and the rich were getting richer. And that's why I decided I needed to get out.
0: So John, any particular families? Uh, I mean, so 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 I started this this program back in January, and it was it was really a fluke. I had I come across I do card sharing, and I had come across uh, a, a woman that was associated to the uh, radio uh, management here. It's a it's a it's a small we're a small little station um, startup in in a hip uh, neighborhood of Wynwood in in Miami, and. And, and and really was a, tracing that line back. It was a friend of mine uh, from Brooklyn that lives down here, and um, and he 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 had said, "Ian, you've got you've got to come listen to the the town hall meeting here. You've got to listen to both sides of the Zika versus DiBrom." And um and, and at that time I was just kind of like a, I was just a sheep. I was just doing you know doing my doing my regular day to day, and I didn't didn't really care about it. The more I more I got into it, and being from San Francisco. What spoke to me was that Chevron Chemical Corporation had developed this pesticide that was being used here, and that I would say 300 people in that in that council chamber were so opposed to it; they were just screaming at the top of their lungs, "Do not spray this stuff on us again!" And Wynwood was the first neighborhood it got hit, and then it was over in South Beach that it got sprayed again. And and I see, I, and so I'm looking at Chevron, chemical, chemical Corporation, and then the Rockefellers had the Rockefeller Foundation and patented. This Zika virus from um, the Uganda forest, the Zika forest in Uganda, and so uh, things were just like not adding up. And and then I'm uh, and then I'm looking at uh, research from the New England uh, 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 Journal of Medicine and then uh, Lancet out of the UK. And then I start reaching out to some of these people, and and everything I'm getting was there is no direct link that Zika itself causes microcephaly. However studies out of Sweden, other studies were showing that the pesticide itself was causing a retardation of the growth of the brain and the de- developing fetus. So I'm looking at these pregnant women and they're being told to spray themselves with DEET and spray themselves and and, and, and protect themselves, receive the, 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 the dibrom that the that these crop dusters are emitting in the air and, and I'm saying, wait, there's a there's a total conflict here. And 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 then I'm following this chain back and I'm thinking, okay, Rockefeller, Chevron Largest shareholders of uh, you know, when when Standard Oil had broken up, the Rockfellers made the largest shareholder of all those different companies. So I'm like, wait a second, okay, petroleum. Right. So petroleum's kind of a, 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 a trace that I'm a line that I'm following this back on. And then I start getting into a guy named Anthony Sutton. And I don't know if you know Anthony Sutton, but he was a Stanford Hoover fellow. And he starts talking about um, societies, uh, uh, fraternal societies and one particular one out of Yale. And then those members are like John Kerry, the Bushes, the Rockefellers. And they're all and of course, you know, these families are making a ton of money off of what we are dependent on on a daily basis, which is putting gasoline in our car. So that's kind of when this developed into like an every Wednesday. And and so, um, the, the, the girl I'd met and I'd gone, I'd come in and I'd done, done a discussion and, and, and I talk about various subjects. I go, uh, honeybees, pesticides killing honeybees. Uh, I talk about mercury putting vaccines. And, and I try not to take sides. Uh, coming on after you, um, I've now developed a relationship with a five-time Emmy award-winning uh, author. Uh, his name is Peter Lance, and he's really gotten into this whole Trump um, uh, uh, election thing. Uh, and he's, he's he's making some interesting connections out of the Ukraine and out of, out of Russia. But I want to hear, obviously, more about what, you and I and I don't want to. I don't want to point fingers, and I want to. And I don't pick sides. That's for sure. I, I I think the whole political system in in the country is a total mess. And 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 your experience speaks speaks to it. Just being bought out by large corporations, international corporations. There's there's so many different angles that I can approach with you, even from like uh, the foundation of the constitution. Uh, which w- was in a, uh, 1783, and then the American uh, War of Independence, and, and some of the some of the factors, uh, the financing factors uh, behind uh, the the Americans, and, and and that sort of thing. But um, maybe I'm getting too broad for you. Let's go back to let's go back to your time in Panama, and it wore it was some of the uh, some of the. Uh, uh, the directives that you had to go into uh, Panama uh, regarding the canal and um, the, 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 the the contract work that you were s- assigned to do. And these guys ended up being assassinated. They lost their lives. Or maybe you can talk a little bit more about, about that.
2: Well, yeah, Panama is one example of uh, the head of state, Omar Torrijos who was a client of mine, and I was supposed to convince him to accept uh, these large loans from the World Bank and Inter-American Development Bank and others um, and put himself deep into debt. And he saw right through this. And what we were trying to do to a large degree with Omar was that Omar was uh, attempting to negotiate a new canal treaty with the Carter administration that would turn the canal over to uh, the Panamanians. A lot of people in the United States were opposed to that. but that also put Omar in a position where he was recognized throughout the world as a leader for independence, for self-determination, for nationalism. and very small country Panama Omar was emerging as this as this inspiration for leaders throughout Latin America and in Africa and other places. And so there was, a, there was a desire to put an end to that uh, and to put him in a position where that would no longer happen. But he, would, he saw through that. He, he wouldn't accept these loans. And for me, it was a huge dilemma because uh, my job depended on me, getting people like that to accept these loans. That was, what, that was what I was supposed to do. And at the same time, I realized that if Omar didn't accept the situation, that did the loans didn't take, didn't, didn't take on my deals, Then he would he would meet dire circumstances. I'd seen how Salvador Allende of Chile was taken down, uh, died, was was overthrown and died in the process uh, because he didn't accept these sorts of deals. Lumumba of the Congo, Mossadegh of Iran, Arbenz of Guatemala, the list goes on. And I liked Omar a lot, Um, so I was really in a dilemma because I, I respected his integrity and yet. His integrity meant that I couldn't do my job, and also that something dire would probably happen to him. But in the end, he he, he didn't accept it, and, and was assassinated. I'm totally convinced. It was a, it was a plane crash. His, 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 his plane, his private plane, killed him. And um, just three months before that, something similar had happened to another client of mine, Jaime Roldos, the Democratic-elected president of Ecuador. Who was reining in oil companies, saying they had to pay a fair share of their profits to the Ecuadorian people, profits they made from Ecuadorian oil, and and again, I tried tried to convince him, but he uh, he wouldn't get it either. And so in May of '81, he died in a private plane crash, and Omar got his calendar together and said, "Hey, you know, I'll probably be next," but at that point, the Canal Treaty had been signed, and he said but don't worry about me. I've accomplished the most important thing in my life to get the kid back in the hands of Catamanians. And then less than three months later, in June of 81, his plane went down. So that's, those are examples of what happens. So when, when economic hitmen men fail, what I always knew is that standing behind me someplace was people we called jackals, mm-hmm. who either overthrow the governments or assassinate their leaders. I didn't necessarily know who these people were, I didn't carry a gun. I didn't assassinate anybody. I didn't do anything like that. But I knew that those people were there. And the leaders of these countries know it too. And even more so now. So you can only imagine after you have something like what happened to Roldos and, and Torrijos uh, occur, every leader around the world is going to have to think twice before standing against economic hitman or standing against the United States. It's a pretty effective system when you come right down to a terrible system. And effective.
0: It's like a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's like, it, I, I, it's like a paralyzing system. It, it basically, yeah. yeah, it paralyzes them, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So where does the system come from? Who developed it? Well, it's just,
2: it's, it's as old as empire in a way. I mean, empires have always used uh, financial incentives, modern form of it is debt, uh, uh, to take control of people, putting them in a situation where they, where they owe the, 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 the empire uh, their lives, their economies, whatever. Um, a, a difference is that, of course, these systems were always backed up by armies in the past. What happened in this case was that back in 19, in the early 1950s, uh, Mossadegh became president or prime minister of Iran. And he'd run on a campaign to um, to tax the oil companies. So, if he became president, the oil companies, especially what became BP British Petroleum, um, would have to pay the Iranian people a good share of the profits for the oil they took out of Iran. Same same deal as what the, what later Roldos was looking for in Ecuador. And when when he became president. Uh, he didn't do that. In fact, he nationalized BP. This is very much upset the British and the Americans. Eisenhower was U.S. President at the time. He refused to send in troops or do anything to overt because Iran's we on the border with Russia. We were in the Cold War. Russia had nuclear weapons. We had nuclear weapons. Eisenhower feared the consequences. Instead, he and his Secretary of State and, and head of the CIA, the Dulles Brothers, uh, Alan and John Foster Dulles, uh, decided to send in the CIA agent, Kermit Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's grandson. And Kermit went in with a few, with, with, uh, literally with suitcases, silver, money, a few million dollars, and a few assistants. And they managed to, to hire thugs and people to go out and demonstrate it in the streets. Uh, they caused a lot of problems to make it look as though most of was very unpopular. And in the end, the CIA came in and overthrew Mossadegh and replaced him with the Shah. And the Shah became a good friend of the American people. This was very effective a few million dollars, no bloodshed, no, no risk of war, and we got what we wanted, and our companies got what they wanted. Um, and so this became the new modus operandi, but it, the only problem with that particular scenario was that Roosevelt was a charge- carrying CIA agent, and had he been caught. US government would have been clearly to blame. So it it was soon determined that the best way to do this would be to hire outsiders, consultants like me, economic hitmen. Uh and if we got caught, we were just serving the interests of our corporations. We weren't we weren't serving the government uh, theoretically. So so that's that's really where this came up and it worked very successfully for many years. Then and and so you had this new form of empire building, which is based on economics rather than the military. At the late, at the end of the of the 1900s, the 20th century, uh, the big corporations that had a lot, that had previously made a lot of money in war material, get very restless. They understood that even though empire was expanding, the US was taking more and more control. They weren't getting their peace, and so President Clinton began to think about, oh, maybe we ought to reverse this process. He didn't really do it. And then Bush came along, and 9-11 happened. Yeah. And that was the perfect excuse to get back into militarization. And we've gone full steam ahead ever since. And so today, we actually have a situation where we still have these economic hitmen not doing their thing. But in addition, we're also using the old system in Syria and Yemen and in Afghanistan and Iraq, places like that to take sending the military in.
0: So, so, so walk us through your knowledge of, of, of what happens. How does, (laughs) I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. It's never added up. uh, The, 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 the invasion of Iraq after um, this uh, uh, Afghani of uh, linked to the Saudi, Saudi family uh, is behind the, the, the twin towers coming down. Uh, How does, how does that add up? How what happened there, as far as the, as far as the the, the protocol of a Hitman and then a Jekyll and then uh, how does how does that relate to, to what happened to Sudan Hussein?
2: Oh, well, like I said, the the administration was just looking for an excuse uh, to help the war industry. So uh, you are you clearly don't own stock in Raytheon uh, or General Dynamics <laughs> because if you did and if you owned a lot of stock, if you were one of the major stockholders. One of those corporations, or a lot of others that that thrive off war, the front of war, uh, you would see the advantage of Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Syria, Yemen, all of those places, all of what's going on in the world, because you'd be making a lot of money off that. Of it. it adds up for those people.
0: So it's 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 like this system that uh, uh, that's. Oh, how, I mean we need to talk resolution and then also trying to grasp what's going on um with the with the federal reserve i mean the for instance the the you pull out a dollar bill out of your pocket and it says it's a federal Reserve note it doesn't have any value the Federal Reserve says they don't have any gold the u s treasury doesn't have any gold so the the value of that dollar is therefore. It's the it's the might of the military, isn't it?
2: Well, it's the might of perception. Uh, What we have to remember is that uh, there's really two realities in this world: uh, objective reality and perceived reality. uh, That the, the telephone I'm talking into right now is is objective reality. The words we're speaking are pretty much about perceived reality. And human activities are very much controlled by perception. When you come right down to it, there's no United States, there's no Russia, there's no China. There are no countries except as we perceive them. There are no corporations, there's no religion, there's no culture, there's no, there are no corporations except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it impacts objective reality in a big way. We have a perceived reality that the almighty dollar is almighty, and that we can use it, and it works. And so because enough people buy into that perception, it works. It does work. You know, I just came back from Russia, Kazakhstan, and Italy, and the dollars are worth a lot of money in those countries. Uh, And it, it is all over the world. Why? Because it works. Yes, partly it's because of the U.S. military, partly it's because of our economy, but more than anything else, it's because it's perceived to work by a great many people throughout the world.
0: So what? So uh, what were you, what? what do you, when you go to Russia, what do you, what do you, do you do you do you give seminars? Do you do you tell people about your book? What what do you, what do, you
2: do? Well, I was invited to Russia to speak at the Saint Petersburg International Economic Forum, along with uh, President Putin, Secretary General of the United Nations, uh um, Prime Minister Modi of India, a bunch of pretty highfalutin people there, and I was invited to speak in Kazakhstan. at the at the Astana, the city in Kurdistan, economic forum there, again, along with a bunch of Nobel Prize winners and, and prime ministers, or former prime ministers, including the former prime minister of France. Um, and I was one of the speakers, and it was it, it's a fascinating experience. And, you know, I have to say that we have a very, very uh, misdirected understanding of Russia And the former Soviet countries, countries like Kazakhstan, and their leaders. Uh, We think of them as brutal dictators, and they may be dictators. Those countries typically believe in dictatorship. Not not everybody in the world believes in democracy. And I'm beginning to think that the United States doesn't really believe in democracy. (laughs) We don't (laughs) really have a democracy here. So it's very interesting to see leaders like Putin talk over and over again about the biggest problems in the world.
1: He,
2: he, He was interviewed by Megyn Kelly. CNBC and before Fox, she was vicious, and all she wanted to talk about was Russian interference in the election here. And he, first of all, he started off by denying that, but then he said, "Hey, let's talk about. We know that Russia spies on the United States. We know that the United States spies on Russia. We know yeah. that the United States spies on its allies like Germany. Russia doesn't do that," he said. But then he went on to say, "Let's talk about what's important in the world today: climate change, terrorism." and income inequality. These are the things that we have to address. The United States has to address them. Russia has to address them. And I hear this over and over, Ian, from some of these leaders that we consider that our press portrays and our people believe are very, very sinister and horrible and and out to get us. They're not fighting the Cold War anymore (laughs) in Russia. We are still fighting it here. (laughs) Megyn Kelly is still fighting it here. It became very obvious. So uh, it's... fascinating to see how Russia, and of course Putin is very, very popular in Russia, much more popular than any U.S. president has been really? in my lifetime. They love him. Um, and, you know, there's a reason for that.
0: Because he sounds like he's a human. Pardon me? It sounds like he's a human being.
2: Well, he is. <laughs> he's very human. He's very human. He's got a very interesting sense of humor, and he's, he you know, he he put up with some What I consider to be outrageous questioning by some of the U.S. uh, media, which all they wanted to talk about was the U.S. elections, and rather than you know questioning him, legitimate, hardcore questions of saying, "Well, listen, if you believe in climate change, if you believe in income, in in, in getting rid of income inequality, what is it you're doing about it here in Russia? What do you suggest?" Rather than digging into what was important and what he said was important, all they did was go after. This U.S. election thing, which you know is pretty absurd, because they knew they knew what his answer was going to be.
0: So, John, as as an average everyday American individual, and and um, as we try to. It sounds like we got. It seems like we've got a pretty darn good constitution if it's upheld. It it, it sounds like the Federal Reserve um, and the economic powers that can that control uh, our taxes and our basic way of life. I mean, uh, a, a guest I would had on a couple of weeks ago called in from Germany, uh, F. William Engdahl, and he uh, guest lectures at uh, University of Beijing and uh, also in Xi'an, and he says that the Chinese are putting a lot of effort to build these high speed high speed rail to connect to Turkey, connect up to Russia. And it's, I feel like, I feel like, uh, and, 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 and by the way, I've heard you talk about Bechtel and, 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 um, I'm from San Francisco, but I feel like, I feel like you, we, we in this country are like enslaved to this. And I'm just going to go back to this right now because that's like the end all at the moment. That's kind of like what I see. We're enslaved to these, um, these wealthy corporations, uh, and, uh, the powers that be that control, um, the oil fields on the planet. And it's like we're 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 forced to remain dependent on that, and it's totally corrupted um, uh, the 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 if you will the democracy from which the republic is practicing its politics, um, and uh, the 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 constitution uh, that, uh, that that that. I feel that we're fortunate enough to to have inherited from the forefathers so what are some of these what are some of the things that you know as you travel the world and and and, and people read your book and and you're trying to expose and educate and inform people what are some of these things that we can do um as 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 Average individual people. What can we do right now after after we get off the after after we close our web browser or or, or whatever we we're done here for the day? What can we do to start making a change?
2: Well, that's really the theme of my latest book, The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. The whole last section, fifteen chapters, is devoted uh, to that. It's devoted to turning a failed economic global economic system into one that can work. Uh, moving from what I call a death economy, which is based on militarization, on wars or the threat of wars, and on destroying the very resources upon which it depends, and turning that into a life economy that's based on cleaning up pollution, regenerating destroyed environments, recycling new technologies that don't destroy the earth, yeah. <laughs> for transportation, communications, energy, all these things. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous future waiting to happen out there, and we need to make it happen. Yeah. And I think actually the Chinese are, are, are recognizing this. I, I know that's an unpopular thing to say in the United States. We, <laughs> we, we want enemies. We want to believe that Russia is our enemy and that China is our enemy and that it's all their fault. Yeah. The fact of the matter is we blew it in the United States uh, and we're in decline. Yeah. They're, they're, they're coming up. We've made a lot of enemies around the world. I travel throughout Latin America extensively. I'm on my way there in a couple of weeks. I know leaders of the country, of many countries in Latin America. And they'll tell me we would much rather take loans from China than from the United States or the World Bank because we know that the United States has assassinated leaders here. (laughs) We know you've had big military bases in in our countries. We know what you can do. Uh, China hasn't done that. Will they do it in the future? Maybe. Maybe not. They haven't done it. You have. What do you say? Well, who would you choose? You know, and I think that's very sad, and I don't think that some Americans understand that, but it's time we did understand that,
1: and it's time we move forward and to
2: recognize that big corporations control this country, they control a great deal of the world, yeah. especially the United States, and this has been true for some time, but it's become extremely overt under Trump, and to understand that big corporations control us, and yet. They depend on us to support them. We control them. If you really right. think about it, the marketplace is a democracy. When you buy something or choose not to, you're casting a vote. As long as you also send emails, let the companies know why you're buying from them or not buying from them. And these companies have to respond to us. Uh, huge corporations are no longer in existence that once, that once were. You know, you can... You can, you, there's just a huge number of cor- big corporations, powerful corporations, that have gone out of business because they didn't respond to the of people or they had poor management. They know this. I talk to a lot of high-level corporate executives, CEOs, and others. I speak at conferences. And over and over, I hear from many of these guys, or a few women, that they're very worried about the world. They know the ego issues are melting. They know these species are going extinct. They know that things are falling apart. But they'll say things like, you know, I'd like to pay my workers in Indonesia a, a living wage, but I'm afraid if I do, I'll lose half a percentage of sure. market share. And if that happens, my top stockholders will fire me and replace me with someone who only cares about market share. So they said, hey, tell everybody that you speak to, tell Ian's listeners, listen, uh, write me yeah. an email. If every one of your listeners, it's a corporation, Monsanto, Nike, Walmart, I don't care who it is, pick a corporation, and write them an email, be nice, be supportive, say, I love your product. You <laughs> yeah. might not want to say that with Monsanto, because I've always that. <laughs> I love your product, but I'm not going to buy them anymore until you clean up the pollution you've caused or pay your workers a fair wage. Send that email every week to these people and also send it to all your social networking circles. And ask right. them to send it out to, out to the corporation and to all their social networking circles. And when enough of us do this, these corporations have changed. We've seen this over and over. Consumer movements do work. We saw it in apartheid in South Africa years ago. I helped to get the rivers in this country that were terribly polluted cleaned up, get corporations to open the doors wider to women and minorities. These movements work, and so that's that's an approach that every one of your listeners can take. Can you get off this call? Go to your email, post, tweet, whatever. Get people to rally. Pick a corporation. if It is Monsanto. If you don't, that's going to become an enemy number one. <laughs> tell them you know uh, I'm not going to buy any products that have any of your products in them, any of your seeds or anything else, until you start making seeds that do not require. Uh, toxic insecticides and chemicals. You need to start making seeds that will help poor people around the world grow food more efficiently without all the chemicals. And once you do that, I'll be 100% supportive of you. Stuff like that. We can do it. We have to. It has to come from us. This is, if, it's, if, if we want to be a democracy, we've got to participate and we've got to understand that the leverage point is not our senators, our representatives. Right. Yes, we need to keep after them. But the leverage point really is the big corporations
0: exactly and then the i mean one of the one of these one of these <laughs> we're we're just continuing to like sink i feel like things are sinking the dark act right Do, uh, not allowing americans to know uh, G- uh, when when a uh, product's been genetically modified the gmo labeling things like that cannot i mean can they they cannot pass we we've got we've got to stand up I, I think your approach to emailing and and tweeting and uh, hitting social media is is an excellent way. One of the one of the forces that drives me every Wednesday to do this show is it, it's an independent radio station. So I can approach John Perkins. I I can approach F. William Ingall. I can approach Peter Lance. And if they're willing to come onto the show, then you and I, like we're having right now John, we can have a great conversation. We have a conversation. You can you can educate my listeners and I'm not beholden to anybody's money. I, I, I we're, we're an independent station. We can say whatever we want. And I, I feel like these types of platforms are the only way out of this. And we've got to kind of, we've got to help educate one another and reach out. And I think that once people will start connecting the dots, and of course you've connected a lot of dots, um, you, you connect a lot of dots for them, we can and we will start to achieve some, of this change. Um, it's kind of a mess. I feel it's, I, I, I feel, you know, it's kind of a mess. Um, what was the driving force? And I got a couple minutes left with you and I really appreciate your time, John. Um, you, you the last, I, I was supposed to have you on, uh, uh, about a month and a half ago. And, um, and, and, uh, um, uh, the, the, the person that works for you, um, mentioned that you were in Russia. So I, so I really appreciate you coming, coming on the show. Um, what was the driving force for you to write this book? Was it going down to some of these South American companies? And, and by the way, I speak a little Spanish, so maybe we can have a future broadcast in Spanish because I understand you speak Spanish. So maybe we can, we can do a Spanish broadcast. But um, what, 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 was the, what was the kind of the, the key that, that, that turned the switch for you to say, I've got to expose some of this stuff? I've, I've got to write a book and get this out. What, what was it?
2: Well, it was Uh, 9/11. On 9/11, I was in Ecuador and deep in the jungle with a group of people who were there learning from the indigenous people there about how to live better with nature. And when I came back, I went to Ground Zero. I flew up to Ground Zero. As I stood there looking down into that smoldering pit, I I I knew I had to write this book. And I'd put it off before. I'd I'd started to write it uh, many years before, and I contacted other former econo- or other economic hitmen and jackals to get their stories. I wanted to write an expose that included lots of stories. Immediately after that, I got a phone calls threatening my life. Wow. And at the same time, and this is all in the new confessions of the economic hitmen, in much more detail than I'm giving it here. But to make a long story short, I also got invited to dinner by the president of Stone & Webster, a big consulting firm in Boston that still exists. And he took me out to dinner, and he said, hey, you know, and I, I had left, at this point, I would left my job. I, 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 I quit, and my conscience had sent me out of my job as a chief economist, economic hitman, Charles T. Maine. This guy says to me, he says, you know, you've got a great resume. You were chief economist of one of our major rivals. Uh, we'd like to use your resume in our proposals. You don't have to do any work for us. Just let us use your resume. And I'm prepared to write you a check tomorrow morning for half a million dollars.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Just don't write that book. (laughs) So, Ian, my life's being threatened, and also those phone calls threaten my daughter's uh, life. life, life. She was an infant at the time. My life and my daughter's life are being threatened, and I'm being offered a bribe. Totally legal. Consultants, retainers, are totally legal. This is a really big one, but it's totally legal. I ask you, what would you have done? You don't have to answer, but I took the bribe. You took I it. I didn't write the book. Right. And what I did do, though, is I put that money—not toward buying a bunch of fancy cars or a big house or something. I put the money to creating a new career for myself. I, I went back to the people I'd been a peace corps volunteer with in the Amazon. Okay. I formed a couple of nonprofits, stream Change, and co-founded the Pachamama Labs with Bill and Twist, nonprofits that are still. It, out there doing a great work, you can go to dreamchange.org or pachamama.org. Mm-hmm. And also, please go to my website, johnperkins.org. Sign up for my newsletter. newsletter comes out about once a month. And oh, for one of the trips to the places where I take people in, in, in Guatemala, Costa Rica, Colombia, yeah. Ecuador, Amazon. Uh, and in any case, um, I took the money and I put it toward going back to where the Peace Corps volunteer and telling these people, I know you're forced to be destroyed, the oil companies are coming in, I want to help you. And I've devoted the rest of my life to doing that. But then when 9-11 happened, I had, my contract with Tom Webster was over, and I knew I had to write this book. But I decided I wouldn't tell a soul I was writing it. I would not write it as an expose with other stories. I would just write it as a personal confession so I didn't have to talk to anybody else. I'd write the whole book. At that point, and, and during the process before that, I had written five other books on shamanism and indigenous people, which was fine with Stone Webster for me to do that. So I knew the publishing world. I knew what I was supposed to do is write a proposal, get in advance, write the book, but I didn't do that. I wrote the whole book. And once it, I got that book written and out to a bunch of publishers, I figured it was my insurance policy that anybody who didn't like what I... Was doing, writing, would would not want to see something dire happen to me because it would just make me a martyr and sell a lot of books. Which, incidentally, I think that's somewhat true because someone did poison me and I spent two weeks in a New York City hospital, five weeks after the book came out. I was about to speak at the United Nations. This, too, is detailed in the New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I was poisoned. I nearly died. I came very, very, I came inches from, from death. And in the end, uh, in this hospital, they removed uh, three-quarters of my large intestine. So, uh, But I don't think that was a jackal. I don't think that was CIA. I don't think it was anybody officially sanctioned because they're too smart for that. I think it was, I mean, I know who the person was. I I haven't been able to recontact them, but the story's in the book. But I I think it was a a crazy person. It didn't appear to be crazy, but a fanatic.
0: Okay, okay, interesting. John, um... Just in closing, um, what, was it, what was the first thought that came to your mind after you, uh, you saw 9-11 happening? What was the first thought that entered your mind?
2: Well, it wasn't like that. I was, I was in the Amazon. I heard about it through okay. a shortwave radio in the Amazon. So there were a lot of thoughts that had gone on before. And then here it is a couple of weeks later. I'm up there ground zero. Two weeks later, and, and it's still smoldering as I'm standing there. I, I, I don't know if there was any one thought. It was, but What came to me was that I had to expose the, a system that would result in such things, and that is not to condone whatever happened there. I don't know who's responsible for an I-11, frankly.
1: I, I just don't know.
2: Yeah. But it is to say that I saw it as a symptom of a failed system, and a system where a lot of people are extremely uh, depressed and discouraged, and where there's a whole system in the United States that's trying
0: to keep them that way, John. Uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the program, JohnPerkins.org. Please go out buy his the new Confessions of an Economic Hitman or the original Confessions of an Economic Hitman.
2: But, but buy the new one; it's got everything in okay. that the old one has, and a lot more.
0: Awesome. John, do you have a parting shot?
2: Just thank you very much. I'm, I'm very hopeful. I think with shows like this and, and people reading books, and I think to the consciousness change that's happening throughout the world, uh, and thank you for all that you're doing, and to keep spreading the word.
0: Okay. Thanks, man. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. John Perkins, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, guys, like, woo! wake up call, right? Here's, here's a, an incredible resource, and, and we're moments away. We're going we're gonna to be joined by Peter Lance. Here's an incredible resource for us that has been in the trenches and knows the going-ons that the majority of us don't. We don't have a clue because we're not taking the time to dig. All we have to do is simply pull us, take a shovel out, and start digging. That's it. It's that simple. It's that basic. John is an incredible source of information for us to learn from. We were very fortunate to have him join discussions on Winwood Radio. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. I'll be back momentarily with Peter Lance.
1: Your shadow, and you can find me in the sun so bright. And tie me to your wrist each night, and I'll follow you. i follow you. lines, going the wind blows. But I'm living in a dream acting like
0: million miles. Okay, I'm back. And. We are joined, rejoined, by the amazing Peter Lance. Peter, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me all right? <laughs> Loud and clear, man. Great okay. connection today. Good. Okay, so, um, if you're listening, to to kind of to kind of put things in perspective for yourself, pull up right now, Investigating Trump, just as it sounds, investigatingtrump.com. Peter, welcome back. How are you?
3: It's good to be back, and the momentous events have transpired in the last 48 hours, so, uh, with respect to the the Trump Russia connection, so it's uh, it's good to be talking with you at this moment.
0: Dude, did you? So you caught the tail end of John Perkins?
3: Yeah, I caught the tail end. What he what he said about the threats that have been made on him and how he essentially took the you know took the path of least resistance. However, he turned the profits that he got for not doing the book around and redeemed himself in a in a beautiful way. And I really admire him for that. So. You know the guy's great. You know, there's, all, there's none of us that do this kind of work, and I don't mean to put myself in in his category because he's, uh, you know, he's he's got a different area of expertise. But like me, he's risked a lot in trying to tell the truth. And all of us that do this, uh, there's very little, uh, uh, you know, remuneration for investigative reporters up until uh, the Trump presidency, until he came on the radar investigative reporting was really an endangered species, and thankfully it's been revived. Uh, You know, Rachel Maddow now, nightly has some of the highest ratings in cable television, Uh, and there's been a, you know, resurgence in interest in subscriptions to The New York Times, The Washington Post, that have been doing amazing work. So, you know, but it's a lonely job. It takes a lot of time. It's very expensive for a news organization. And when you're someone like me, basically, you know, the principal investigative reporting that I did in the last third of my career was in writing four books for HarperCollins, but it was over a 10-year period. The advances didn't come close to what it really cost me to do the books, given that they were so labor-intensive. So you have to kind of believe and really be motivated to do this kind of work, to get at the truth. And in my case, you know, I hate bullies. That's my principal motivation. <laughs> nice. I hate bullies. I, we all hate bullies, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, but I, as a reporter, I've had a, I've been in a position to do something about it. So, in you know, writing about organized crime, a terrorists are bullies. Uh, mafia members are are bullies. People that presume to have a uh, an option on truth and and to get what they want because of the power that they have. And homicide is the ultimate act of a bully. And so I've done a lot of you know, reporting on crime, and I think we have one of the greatest bullies in in modern history in the Oval Office right now, so, and his son, as as manifested in the way he handled this meeting and the way he reacted to it as recently as last night on Sean Hannity, he's a little bully himself, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, so we have to continue to chip away at the truth and uh, hope, and this is my big hope, is that the Robert Mueller and the Justice Department are really, you know, going to do the right thing, because if you go to my website, your listeners go to PeterLance.com, which is my principal website, and you look at the work that I've done, I've written these four books very critical of the FBI in counterterrorism and organized crime, and, you know, I've written thousands of pages, they're all bulletproof in terms of documentation, it's mainstream, reporting. It's not skewed to the left and the right. I was as critical as the Clintons as I was of both Bush uh, bookends and Obama. Uh, And so, you know, it's just, uh, you know, we, we just have to hope that the Justice Department does the right thing, because they are terribly reluctant to correct their mistakes. And there's a lot of pathology that still exists from the days of Hoover and, uh, I'm just skeptical that Mueller is going to go all the way. And I'm really skeptical having watched today what I was really troubled by this morning, watching Christopher Wray, the nominee for FBI director, just being given all these softball questions by the Democrats. Let's remember he was, he was in the administration of George uh, W. Bush. He, he basically uh, turned a blind eye to the torture. Uh, authorization that was going on, he signed off on a renewal of it, and uh, he's nominated by Donald Trump to replace <laughs> the guy he fired, who he thought Comey was going to do a good a good job of going thoroughly into an investigation of the Russia connection. So, I mean, everybody's like, I mean, I was really stunned that there weren't more aggressive questions. And Lindsey Graham, ironically, Lindsey Graham was the one that asked the guy the toughest questions, and when Lindsey Graham said to him. Uh, something that all of us would know the answer to, uh, sir. You know, sir, you know, uh, Mister Ray. If you were, if, if, if you were uh, a politician and you were presented by a foreign power with uh, compromising material, dirt on your political opponent, what would you do? And, and instead of going, "I call the FBI," which is the immediate response it should have been, yeah. the guy kind of hemmed and hawed for like a couple of minutes. Now this is going to be the new guy, and remember, Rod—he answers to Rod Rosenstein, who, and he ultimately answers, he said, to Jeff Sessions, who is also tied up in this thing. So I'm just skeptical that um, you know I'm skeptical. I'm not cynical. I haven't crossed the line to cynicism yet, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm being skeptical, and all of your listeners should be skeptical as well.
0: Good, yeah, <laughs> well said, man. And 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 that's really that's 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 really the the. That's that's the view from 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 where this message that's submitted over Winwood Radio comes from. We we don't take sides. We're simply digging dirt with our shovels. Look, it, it, regardless of who who you have voted for, who you side with. There is multi-layered corruption on uh, coming from all angles and every angle, and uh, you know, like it just it blows me away how uh, how 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 a, how how a, the president of the U.S. can send his daughter to sit in important meetings with heads of state, like what like she was elected to take his place. I don't understand some of these things that are happening under the trump white house i just i just don't get it and and, and I, I don't know if they're lawful or not but um I, I it's like the guy's writing his own his own book um and, and, and doing doing what he wants i mean <laughs> i having chelsea clinton meet with uh meet with the you know, like uh, an economic, a world economic forum would, would be like unacceptable to me um but well, uh,
3: you know here's the here's this is something i alluded to the last time we spoke the level of outrage, there's this kind of an outrage fatigue that, that set in long ago during the Trump presidency. Uh, things that would normally be outrageous, like the ult- multiple conflicts of interest. If you go to investigatingtrump.com in the left-hand column, you'll see a whole section devoted to conflict of interest. There are now almost 700 pieces on this website, which I started in mid-December to kind of curate the best investigative reporting on yeah. Trump on the transition and the, and the campaign and the presidency, and, uh, the, and now more most of the articles almost four hundred have to do with the russia connection, but it's it 's a really if I do say so it 's a great resource. I was writing Huff at the rate of about one every week or so, and then i have i 've been diverted on another project, so i haven 't done as many of my own uh, 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 analyses pieces, but if you go there and you just look at the, the conflicts, why how, the fact that he hasn't put the money into a blind trust, even though he's not legally obligated to, every other president has, the fact that he hasn't uh, disclosed his tax returns, which would tell us who he's indebted to, which is a huge factor. Uh, the, here's the key that people should watch, okay? I'm just going to try and signal a lot of the young people that listen to you that are going through all this for the first time i listened to an old dog who's been through it a few <laughs> times in the yeah. past, although uh, nothing like this, but they've prepared me. I want to, uh, anybody that has a pen or a photographic memory or can just tap into the note thing on their, on their, um, their mobile device, I want people to consider something called the Gulf of Tonkin Incident. The Gulf, G-U-L-F, of Tonkin, T-O-N-K-I-N, Incident. The Gulf of Tonkin Incident. Uh, Was actually of two incidents that happened in uh, in 1964, where uh, allegedly a U.S. uh, destroyer, the Maddox, was uh, in the Gulf of Tonkin off of Vietnam and was, uh, you know, fired upon allegedly by North Vietnamese gunboats, okay, torpedo boats, and that led to outrage in the U.S. and and President Johnson uh, pushed through uh, what was called the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. And Congress overwhelmingly approved it, and that's what led to the true escalation of the Vietnam War, with 55,000 Americans dead, countless Vietnamese, you know, one of the great disasters of all time, the, the the Vietnam War, okay? Yeah. Now, that incident was the total fabrication, but at the time, everybody believed it. People were willing to believe it. Now, I want you to flash forward to Trump and Putin's meeting last Friday, okay? Okay. They had a meeting, and the only people present at the meeting were uh, Lavarev and Tillerson, their two, uh, you know, the two uh, foreign ministers, the secretary of state, and translators, okay, and Trump and Putin, after the press took their photo op shots, they were the only ones there. It'll, it reportedly lasted for two and a half hours, which, which we can assume is correct, because people were waiting to see how long it would last. But virtually every single report of that meeting, including the New York Times, quoted what Trump and or uh, Lavrov later said. What the, the White House readout or and the Russian readout, what they said happened, and they didn't say what reportedly happened. They said it happened. They quoted it like it was truth, and I was I couldn't believe it. It was like even the New York Times. There were some a couple of opinion pieces that said reportedly, but this is what I'm getting at. Uh-huh. I want I want your your. Listeners to think about being healthy skeptics. Don't believe anything that you uh, that is that comes out of this White House. I mean, the, the credibility. Demonstrated most recently by the number of walkbacks Donald Trump Jr. did. He was doing the moonwalk like for four <laughs> days on that whole meeting. Right? I mean, it started out as a meeting about adoptions, and then it turned into a oh yeah, somebody offered me some stuff on Hillary, but it was <laughs> terrible. and We ended the meeting in twenty minutes, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And then, but the most important yeah. aspect of that meeting is his assertion that his father had no knowledge of it. Okay. Now. If you go to Investigating Trump and you scroll down, there's a great Daily Beast piece from uh, a couple of nights ago on Donald Trump Jr. And basically, he's known as the Fredo of the Trump family, you know, as in Fredo from the Godfather saga. Interesting, as yeah. As in, the, you know, the hapless brother who's just kind of a wimp, who's like <laughs> nobody respects, he gets slapped around by everybody. You yeah, know, yeah. that's the nickname they have for Donald Trump Jr. He's, he's, <laughs> he's arrogant and and yet but he has zero respect okay <laughs> now another biographer of Trump last night said one of the one of the i think it was might have been Tim O'Brien that uh that he interviewed Donald Trump Jr once and Trump Jr who's apparently according to the BuzzFeed piece constantly in fear of his father lives in fear wow. of incurring his father's wrath okay? okay and Trump Jr said to this biographer in yeah. an interview you can be right a hundred times, but if I'm wrong once, my father will never forgive me for it. Okay? Oh my gosh. Now, does anybody really, within the sound of my voice, really believe that Donald Trump Jr. arranged had an meeting range by a Russian oligarch, like, cheek to jowl with, with Vladimir Putin, the Aragalevs, the Donald Trump of Russia, these developers who did most of the buildings for the Sochi Olympics, have all these contracts had entered into a contract to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, and that Trump had been in the music video of the guy's son and sent him a video of, like, a birthday, you know, video, congratulations. Yeah. That, that, that Donald Trump Jr. would set up this meeting and invite the Paul Manafort, the campaign director, and Jared Kushner, the, the beloved son-in-law, right. right, to the meeting and come out of it and not go, Hey, Dad, you know what just happened? Oh, man, we got this, oh, wow, Dad. <laughs> Now come on! Of course he did.
1: Right? Yeah, Trump yeah. was
3: in the building that day. He was one floor away. Sure, There's just no way. If nothing else, the kid would have covered himself, you know, from on the meeting, and because he would have you known that little Jared would have run around the corner to tell Don about it, the father. All right. So what I'm getting at is, just watch everything you hear, even if you hear it from. If you're a liberal and you watch MSNBC. You you know, and particularly if you're conservative and you watch Fox News, that parts (laughs) what you're hearing, I'm telling you, because Fox News is hopelessly devoted to preserving the Trump presidency. It is. (laughs) It's It's unequivocal, all right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but, you know, the MSNBC represents the Democratic, the loyal opposition point of view. That's all I'm saying. Just be skeptical.
0: All right. So, okay, so, Peter, Last time you were on, you, I want I want my listeners to be able to, s- to connect some dots and 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 uh, to, to to ask questions is as what they what they need to be doing. The, the fact of the matter is, you, you got a guy whether you're an American or not, but you're living in the U.S. Uh, the fact of the matter is, we're all part of this system, well, one way or the other, right. and we've got we've I mean. Look, we've got what seems to be like a clown. I mean, in in uh, sitting sitting representing each and every one of us, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, traveling the world and, and uh, doing these contracts. You know, the guy's like groped a uh, groped a what was it, his wife. I don't. He groped I I don't think it was. it was. He's got this image of him groping a woman. Um, and then he's you know he's been this TV. Now you, you go back to Ronald Reagan, and it's okay, fine. We had a we had a movie star president. You can kind of draw two parallels, but but Trump is like to, a totally different, a totally different animal, totally different person. And if you what what, what you're doing, at investigating Trump is really kind of connecting some some ties. And, and you brought up some some good things about his his past in Atlantic City and owning the casinos and um right. and then being being funded by by uh, Russian mafia sources. But the the name that you brought up last time. Was the, this Felix Sattar out of the Ukraine?
3: Felix Sater, yeah, Sater, right?
0: Felix Sater. So, right. so connect yeah. some connect some dots for 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 listeners to, to, to be able to start googling or doing. And you know, Google's only going to take you so far. Um, you know, you know, it's not going. It's only going to give you what's been what's been mediated, and, and you're only going to get a certain amount of information. But at least it's a decent place to go, and you can start digging away some things. But 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 laid out laid, laid out some chips for uh, for listeners to chew okay. on. Okay. Uh,
3: well, first of all, in terms of one stop shopping, uh, to give you to give your uh, your listeners an overview, um, uh, if you go in, if you go to investigatingtrump.com, dot you know investigatingtrump.com and at the top is a search bar on the homepage, and you uh, plug in S A T E R, Felix Sater. Uh-huh. There are at least. Uh, 20 pieces, 20 major pieces on him, okay, that go back and, 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 and just kind of give the background of, of his relationship with Trump. But let me try and do, let me try and give you a quick overview and some of the major dots, okay? The, the importance of Felix Sater in this story is that Felix Sater explains the kind of compromat or com- compromising uh, information or blackmail material that, that Putin has on Donald Trump going back decades. You know, the, you know, everybody points to what they call the dirty dossier, which, by the way, has been most of the dossier that was uncovered by the former MI6 operative has been proven to be factual. Uh, there's the obviously the controversial part about the Trump and his suite with the prostitutes and all that stuff. Yeah. But other, the other aspects of it, which which actually dovetail with what we learned this week about their early involvement and in, you know collusion with the Russians is, is dead on, but just and this by the way, I'm, I'm diverting for a second, but this is an important point to make today okay the what we don't know is when when that when the Russian lawyer met with Don Jr. in that meeting in Trump Tower, was she wired? We have every why wouldn't she be if she's basically representing one of the principal spooks in the world, you know. Uh, of Vladimir Putin, right? She would have some way of, co- of recording that meeting uh, because, you know, she wants to have blackmail material later on. Putin wants to have it, right? So virtually, and, and when, when, when Kislyak and Lavrov went into the Oval Office and they took the news crew, you don't think that that news crew in one of their cameras had some kind of device that could have picked up or maybe even remotely sure. scanned a Trump's, um, you know, unprotected cell phone? cloned it or some way I'm not being I'm I'm not trying to sound like a lunatic here I'm just saying that these guys are masters at espionage and tradecraft and so every meeting that Trump would have been in including meetings around the time of the Miss Universe pageant which is when the, 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 the it's alleged that he went to this hotel and had this you know he's around a bevy of beauties at the time and anything that he would have done during then and now I'm going to take you back years to give you an idea of the kind of compromise that they might have on him. Yeah. Felix Sater, uh, if, you, if, you if you went basically to the, to the first article uh, on Felix Sater, if you go to investigatingtrump.com, uh, there's a Newsweek article from June 19th. It says, Donald Trump, Felix Sater, and the mob, lawyers pushed to unsealed court documents. That's a pretty good uh, overview. And then there's one below by Bloomberg, Trump, Russia, and a shadowy business partnership. Felix Sater came to the United States as a young boy from the Ukraine. Felix Sater's father, Michael Shavarovsky, is an absolute stone capo in the Magillovich Russian crime family. And the Magilevich is run by a guy named Semyon Magillovich is the biggest Russian crime family in the world. They do uh, arms trafficking, human trafficking, trafficking drug sales, uh, you know, you name it, they do it and they're huge, and part of the reason that Felix's father came to the U.S. was to help set up a major, uh, you know, outpost in Brooklyn, in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, the Russian community. So Felix came as a young guy, and when Felix was in his, like, in his early 20s, he went to Pace uh, College for a couple, one semester or so, and then he got his broker's license, and he went on Wall Street, and one, one night, one day, he made $3,000 at this firm, and and. I, he was at the firm, and by the way, there's a book uh, called The Scorpion and the Frog that was written by uh-huh. one of his partners named Sal Loria. And the scorp and I read The Scorpion and the Frog, and I've been in touch Terrible. with the former AP reporter who wrote it, and everything in that book is, is dead-on factual, although they, one name that they changed, interestingly, for libel purposes, I'm assuming, was Felix Sater. They just changed his name to Lex Tersa, but in fact, it was Felix Sater. Anyway, the first day of, he makes his first big score on Wall Street. He's like at a club on the Upper East Side. And they're uh, at the bar, and some guy says something to him that he doesn't like, and there's a margarita glass. He basically breaks the stem on the margarita glass and stabs the guy in the face, requiring 99 stitches, an incredibly hyper-violent crime for which he gets a year and a half in New York State Prison. All right, He gets out, he's lost his broker's license, but undeterred, because he's the son of a mob guy, Right. Uh, uh, by the way, Sherezovsky has now changed their name to Seder, Sater, S-A-T-E-R. <laughs> and he's now on Wall Street in this pump-and-dump scheme called White Rock Partners. And they basically built like $40 million in a, in a kind of Wolf of Wall Street scheme. If you saw the Wolf of Wall Street, it's a penny stock scheme. You do an IPO, yeah. you build up, you know, falsely inflate the value of the stock, and then basically people get left holding the back, all right? In this case, to the tune of $40 million. So the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District at the time, who was eventually Loretta Lynch, none other than Loretta Lynch, was in the Eastern District, Brooklyn U.S. attorney, brought the case, and Felix was allowed to cop a plea, Sal Lauria, the guy that wrote the book, who is, has got heavy mob connections through the Colombo crime family, and then another Russian named Gennady Klotzman, who was Felix's lifelong friend. Those three guys take a powder to Russia. They flee the country as soon as the... Uh, even though they were they were they cooperated they basically fled may war- maybe worrying that they'd be that the feds would find more and they get arrested or worse that they get killed from because there were some italian traditional mob guys involved in the thing right so they they're in russia and and stupidly felix leaves a bunch of records in a storage locker at manhattan mini storage in chelsea <laughs> and forgets that it's only a 6 month contract so when it runs out the guy got fine, goes in to find it, and he sees guns and all this stuff. Oh. So he calls the uh, NYPD, they call the Bureau, they come in, and oh my God, that's what led to the whole investigation that the feds brought. So in the this is all on Bill Clinton's watch. So in the year 2000, a press release comes out in which they announce that they've convicted all these guys. They basically all end up taking some kind of plea. They all did a one or two years in prison. But Felix escapes that. In fact, he is not sentenced till the year 2009, nine years later, for, a, for an incredibly uh, damaging white-collar crime where the victims at that point, the damages were up to $112 million with inflation, not $40 million, okay? So Felix gets basically a wrist-slap sentence at the time and is protected by the U.S. attorney and protected by uh, Loretta Lynch. They seal his case. Why? Why did he skate? He skated because... He, after 9-11, he tells the feds that he could get Stinger missiles that Osama bin Laden is, uh, wants to buy, because he's in the Russian mob and he knows how to do that. So they send, like, a, a photo of one serial number of one Stinger missile. And the hapless feds, uh, the FBI and the U.S. attorney, and these believe that this is legitimate, although Sal in his book makes fun of it. He says, like, total scam. But nonetheless, and they feel basically gets to get out of jail free card. The reason I know so much about that process is that my fourth book for HarperCollins, Deal yeah. with the Devil, is that story. It's the Whitey Boger story on steroids. Only I wrote about the Colombo crime family, a guy named Greg Scarpa. Now, here's the thing. I'll get back to Donald Trump now. <laughs> uh, when, when Felix Sater was, uh, you know, I told you he got convicted in this thing in the year 2000. They sent out a press release, but it was, nobody saw the press release. And then right after that, the feds began to seal his case. So if you, t- and he changed his name to S-A-T-T-E-R, he added a T. So if you went on PACER, the federal, uh, you know, uh, search engine for federal cases, criminal and civil, and you looked for his name, you wouldn't find it. And uh, uh, even if you did, it would be under seal, all right, with the help of the, you know, Loretta Lynch and company in the Eastern District, who thought he was doing this great, you know, uh, national security work on the Stinger missiles that were bogus. So... Felix shows up in 2006 with, in Trump Tower in an office working with a guy named Tarif uh, uh, um, Areeb, who is a, uh, from Kazakhstan. And that's, if you look at the, if you go to PeterLance.com, uh, type in S-A-T-E-R, and then just go to the second article from Bloomberg. You'll see the three of them at a press conference with Trump at the opening or the announcement of the uh, commencement of construction for the Trump Soho Hotel which was a, like a 46-story building in Soho. That, sto- that building produced massive litigation because they, they ha- it was questionable how they funded it. They allegedly funded it through a bogus uh, corporation in Delaware that was then bankrolled by a uh, FL group in Iceland that was a Russian oligarch bank. I mean, all kinds of shady dealings on the funding of the thing. It had all kinds of construction problems and then they they could only get zoning to have it as a hotel, but they sold it as a condo. So the people who bought the condos for millions of dollars showed up to move into their condos and they were told at the desk, Oh, you we have to vacate in thirty days. And then cool. we'll put you in another condo for a night and then you can come back. What? What are you talking about, right? Okay. That's how how Donald Trump rolls. In fact, he even announced this triumphant uh, edifice on the end of the season six of The Apprentice. So Felix now (laughs) is sick as thieves, if you will, with Donald and Tariq Arif on this project. And then the New York Times in 2007 does a devastating profile of Felix by a a reporter named Charles Bagley, B-A-G-L-I, which is also on investigatingtrump.com devastating. And now the world knows that Donald Trump is in bed with the son of a Russian mafia figure. This is in 2007 now, December. Okay? You with me? Yeah. So the, the, the many of the people involved in the project who already got defrauded bring a suit, lawsuit, massive lawsuit. We didn't know. And there's a law, there are laws in New York that say, if you're going to represent, if you're going to sell, offer property for sale, you have to warrant to your to your buyers that you nobody involved has a criminal record or anything like that. So Trump later on during a deposition a couple of years later which is also on my website you can google the Sader and you'll find the deposition. Trump says, I wouldn't know the man if you walked into the room. This is what he says in the deposition. I think it was in 2008 or 9. But after the SHIT hit the fan on yeah. Felix from the New York Times piece he ends up with an office in Trump Tower with a business card, (laughs) Felix Sater, Trump Organization, senior advisor, and Trump kept him close and did deals with him for a long time. Ultimately, Felix Sater was the guy in January. If you remember the so-called Ukrainian peace proposal, you know, one of the main things that Vladimir wants is to get the end of sanctions, because he'll make a ton of money. Rex Tillerson, if he has any stock in Exxon Mobil, will make it overnight, (laughs) will become extra-billionaire because of the, their Arctic drilling operation, which is put on hold by the Ukrainian, the invasion of Crimea, annexation, and the whole Ukrainian thing. So those restrictions which, which the pro-Putin forces want removed, Felix Sater has a meeting with Michael Cohen, who's Trump's lawyer. Even today they're showing video of the Aragolevs with Trump. Michael Cohen's in the video. He's very close to Trump. He's mentioned in the, in the dossier. And Michael Cohen and Felix and a pro-Putin Ukrainian politician, right-wing politician at a New York hotel, they come up with this plan, and Michael Cohen reportedly drops it on the desk of Michael Flynn about a week before Flynn got canned, okay? So that puts Felix in the picture with Donald Trump all the way up till January, and I have him in the picture with Donald Trump in 1996, because guess what? Where do you think the offices of White Rock Investments were, this scam operation, $40 million, that defrauded all these people, where Felix got, by the way, he got a wrist slap of $25,000 fine, and the feds, like, defended him at his, tri- at his sentencing, and there were no victims. They, the feds violated the victim statutes, which mandate that victims get to come and testify. <clears throat> Felix could have been liable jointly and severally for that $112 million which has had grown to at that sure. point. The damages, and he got a $25,000 fine, wrist slap, no problem. Well, oh guess gosh. what? I have him with Donald Trump. He's, he, that White Rock partner was in Donald Trump's penthouse at 40 Wall Street in 1996. That's how far back Felix Sater, this Ukrainian gangster son and violent criminal, goes with Donald Trump. So if you want, if you want, The word dirt came out this week. You know, dirt on Hillary. If you want to get some understanding of how compromised Donald Trump is with the Russians and how he's freaking out over this investigation and why he wanted to fire James Comey over it to stop it, you'll understand that's the kind of compromise that they have. This wasn't just oh, well, he met, uh, Donald Jr. met with a Russian lawyer in June, and that's when the compromising stuff began. No, this goes back years. And you can bet in virtually every meeting that Felix Sater was in with Donald Trump, uh, well, you can't bet it. I'm not going to predict it. I wasn't in the room. But I would say that Russian trade tradecraft dictates that there were certain recordings made of certain meetings over the years. And whether they were made by Felix or whether they were made by Tariq Arif, the other partner, or a guy named Tamir Sapir, who's a Georgian immigrant who got became went from being a cab driver, virtually a multi-billionaire, wow. right? A little mini oligarch himself by dealing with you know favorably with Putin and, and company. One of those guys or more recorded conversations over the years, and they have that those files on Donald Trump. Ready to drop on him at a moment's notice. So whether there's urine on a bed at a hotel in Moscow, <laughs> somebody's got pictures with prostitutes, doesn't matter. That that's that's chump change compared to the kind of compromise uh, uh, Putin has. So now when he goes into the meeting with Putin last week, by the way, I want everybody to review the video of that meeting. Look how they shake hands. Watch. Look. Freeze on the handshake. You know whose hand is on top? Vladimir. Uh, Donald's hand is on the bottom. The, the body language is, is
1: stunning Whoa.
3: because the little guy Putin, this little guy, he's running the meeting, man. He's calling he's the shots. And, and then they try and tell you that, that Donald Trump began by raising the oh, Russian issue. That's what we're hearing from Rex Tillerson, who got a special medal from Putin. Uh, because of his loyalty to the Russian Federation, and who stood to lose his company, ExxonMobil, $1 billion when the sanctions were mounted. And when those sanctions are removed, Rex Tillerson, if he retained any ExxonMobil stock, and it's reasonable to believe that he did, it may be in a blind (laughs) trust, but he knows he's got it, he'll get much richer. And he's our Secretary of State. So what kind of buffer is he going to be to this kind of manipulation by Putin of Trump? Anyway...
0: Wow, dude! You just blew a massive hole in uh, any cover going on there. I feel that's that, that's phenomenal. I wasn't expecting that today.
3: Well, you know, uh, it's just I look. You try and look <laughs> for links, and Jeez. you try and look for things that people don't see.
1: Yeah, uh,
3: and 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 again, it's like you know, I don't know. I mean the. The, the stunning naivete, it, it, he's not yeah. naive. Look, Donald Trump didn't get aid, you know, even sure. though he inherited $100 million from his father, and even though he declared bankruptcy six times, etc., Donald Trump is an, a, an idiot. I mean, he may have experienced dementia in his old age, and now he may have lost it along the way, but you know, he was no fool for many, many years. He knew he was, who he was dealing with, who he was in bed with. And there's one other aspect of the story I I, I touched on the last time that you should know. When uh, Megilevich, and by the way, Megilevich was, was indicted for a several hundred million dollar fraud in the Philadelphia area, one of his many scams. Yeah. And he was on the ten most ten most wanted list of the FBI in wow. two thousand nine. And the Jeez. FBI agent that put him there went on TV and said how dangerous he was. Described him as almost like a James Bond level villain. You know this McGillicutty, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. who's the pet, the boss of Felix Sater's father's family. Megilovich, uh was taken off the uh, ten most wanted list during the tenure of uh, one Leslie Caldwell, and Leslie Caldwell was appointed was one of the assistant U.S. attorneys in Brooklyn, who uh, was there at the time, Felix, you know, they were protecting Felix Sater. She went into private practice so that at his sentence, she represented him. One of the ex-Feds represents Felix at his little wrist-tap sentence. And then when Loretta Lynch is appointed to run, uh, you know, the attorney general, the Justice Department, she comes over, Leslie Caldwell, as the head of the criminal division. And it was on her watch and on Loretta Lynch's watch that, drumroll, boom, <laughs> McGillivich is taken off the 10 most wanted list. Oh and the only gosh. way you get taken off the 10 most wanted list is if you die or you get caught, right? right. And the guy they replaced him with was a bank robber, a alleged bank robber in, in uh, I don't know, because he's still alleged unless they caught him, I don't know, you know, in, in Colorado. A minor player compared to Semyon McGilavitt. So, what's all that about? You know, why why would somebody in the revolving door? So, I I want people that are listening to me who may be hard and Trump supporters to understand that there's dirt on both sides of this story. Yeah. Okay, there's there's negligence, and that's why what I'm worried about is that the Justice Department again they tend to. If you look at all of my books, you go to peterlands dot com. You can. You can download them, you can buy them on Amazon, you know, the four major uh, HarperCollins books I wrote. All of them, it's, it's a stunning uh, tale of uh, the timeline, and you can see how many times the FBI were, they could have stopped the 9-11 plot. They had a guy on the inside named Ahmed Salem, who I spoke to today, who's a friend of mine. He went into witness protection for 14 years after he convicted the blind shake in a plot to blow up the bridges and tunnels in, you know, in New York. He's an ex-Egyptian intelligence officer, a real American hero. Well, he, you know, he could have stopped, and he's got an FBI agent on tape at the time because he, he, he so mistrusted the FBI while he was taping the bad guys, the terrorists, he was taping the FBI agents because he didn't trust them. And he says to the FBI, if we was doing what we was doing, investigating, you know, we could have stopped it. The bombs wouldn't have gone off. And the, and the agent says, yeah, I know, but don't say anything about it. He's got that on tape, okay? I wrote an article in Playboy magazine about him in 2010, and that, the, the direct quote is in there. So they don't want the world, the Justice Department, particularly the New York office of the FBI, the NYO, which is the principal office. That services the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District. Now, Comey was the U.S. Attorney. Comey was then Deputy Attorney General. Uh, attorney Comey's best friend, uh, one of his best friends, is Patrick Fitzgerald, who was the head of the organized crime terrorism unit in the, in the Southern District. And I wrote about him in my third book, Triple Cross, which focuses on Al Qaeda spy Ali Mohammed. And basically, I proved that Patrick Fitzgerald made an ends justifies the means decision to downgrade probative evidence of al-Qaeda in 1996 that they got from an informant in federal jail in lower Manhattan. And they basically did that, because that informant was, in, was his father was the principal of my book, Gregory Scarpen, and he had a violent war uh, for succession in the Colombo family in the early 90s. The feds had 75 indictments in Brooklyn, and they, nobody knew that, for years, Greg Scarpa had been a top echelon informant, like Whitey Bulger, that he was basically a criminal with a get-out-of-jail-free card from the FBI, and that the FBI handlers were leaking him information so he could kill his rivals. Right? They would even leak him information so he could find his loan shark customers and and extort money from them. I mean, it was amazing. It's went on for years. They paid him over a million dollars. Between 1961 and 1994, when he ultimately he he died, he was ultimately arrested. He got the HIV virus at one point, and he he kind of withered away, and eventually he died in prison. But until he died, just his last great gasp in 91, 92, 93, uh, 92, 93 was a war in Brooklyn in which 14 people died. Including two innocent bystanders, and many people were injured. It was a massive shooting war on the streets of Brooklyn that Scarpa Senior, the FBI's own guy on the inside, propagated. You know, he instigated. He kept it going, and his FBI handler used information, gave him information that allowed him to continue doing it. So, you know, I am skeptical about how the Justice Department is going to handle. All of this other stuff, particularly in the Felix Sater area, where they have some, uh, you know, as, as, as Ricky Ricardo would say, some splaining to do, you know, to, <laughs> use, them, uh, to use a Cuban American metaphor there for in Miami, you know, you got some splaining to do, Lucy, you know? Well, they got some splaining to do when it comes to the Eastern District and the way they treated Felix Sater, son of a Russian mobster uh, of, who is a capo in the crime family. Of Mogilovich, who was taken off the ten most wanted list by an associate of uh, of uh, you know Loretta Lynch when she was attorney general, and this woman was the head of the criminal division. <laughs> amazing right? everything I've said right now is absolutely a hundred percent true, okay <laughs> and Patrick Fitzgerald, Comey's buddy, <laughs> after I published the material on Patrick Fitzgerald in my book Triple Cross, about how he basically They they discredited Scarpa's son was the one. Greg Jr. was the one. He was in a jail cell in federal jail in Lower Manhattan in between Ramzi Youssef, the original World Trade Center bomber, who was the architect of the 9-11 plot, and a guy named Abdul-Hakim Murad, a pilot trained in four flight schools, who were going to do the 9-11 plot in 1995. And the Philippines National Police sent the information to the Southern District of Uh. New York, and they did nothing about it. Well, guess what? Greg Scarpa Jr., Gets intelligence that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's Yusuf's uncle, is hiding out in Doha Gutter, which is this controversial country right now in the Middle East. He's hiding out in Doha in 1996, and it's so credible the FBI sends the hostage rescue team, the HRT, to kick the door down, guys, and they're told to wait at the airport and they cool their heels while the Alfani regime of Gutter. Spirits him out of the country to the Czech Republic only to have him take the towers down on 9 right? 11. That kind of actional intelligence, which was stunning, that Scarpa Jr. got, they buried. And Patrick Fitzgerald alleged in a sworn aff- affidavit or affirmation that it was a hoax and a scam. It wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. And I spoke to the, the mafia guy that he uses as a source, and he told me I never told that to the feds. It was genuine. And moreover, on my website, peterlance.com, there are dozens of FBI three oh two memos during this eleven month sting of Scarpa Jr. of Yusef that the feds were a party to, including Fitzgerald himself, right? All of that material is so credible and there's no motive for Scarpa Jr. or Yusef to, to lie about it. And uh, and that and they basically said, you know what, whatever this terrorism thing is, it's not as big a threat as losing these mafia cases in Brooklyn. And already fourteen mob guys had walked in trials, and they walked out of jail, all right, 14 of them out of the 75, because the feds failed to disclose this unholy alliance between Scarpa and his FBI handler, Linda Vecchio. Now they're worried that the other 61 are going to fall, and it's going to be over, and so they decide to discredit that intelligence, and, and you know, even though they, and they lost Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in gutter and then years went by and eventually the towers went down, all right? So, you know, that's the kind of compromise, if you will. That's the kind of embarrassing stuff that in the annals of the, of the Justice Department, not in Keokuk, Iowa, Ian, not in some, sure. you know, some like remote look. I'm talking about the best of the best in the New York office in the Southern District, the two bin Laden offices of origin in New York, and... That's the kind of stuff where I'm wondering now when they try and bring this indictment, are they going, I mean, Mueller, if he tries to bring criminal charges, is he going to go all the way or is he going to have to edit things based on what the mistakes that were made by the FBI and the DOJ in New York over the years involving Felix, in Brooklyn, involving Felix Sadie.
0: And we can track, we're going to track this back to Sabata Oil, or, or I will. I'll, I'll I'll I'm gonna I'm gonna am I'm gonna try to if that makes any sense to you. I know that's way off. That's way off bat, Well, uh, I don't.
3: I'd ra- here's the thing. I don't know anything about that. Yeah. So I'd rather just I'd rather talk to you. And I have a, like maybe another five minutes. I'd rather talk about the things that I know about. I, yeah. I, you know that that's a story. I just I don't want to com- conflate. Is the is a current new uh, trendy word. I don't want to <laughs> conflate. What I've told you with other things that I don't know about, if you don't mind. I mean, that's your so. area of expertise, and <laughs> you, you have plenty of time to inform your viewers about it. But what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is, is this, okay? If, if there was a completely tabula rasa, blank slate, okay, that when Robert Mueller began investigating, Now, Robert Mueller was the FBI director after 9-11, and he was the FBI director. Um, he had a guy... Uh, well, Louis Free, who preceded him, Louis Free, let's talk about Louis Free for a minute. Louis Free was an FBI agent in this New York office. He then became a federal judge, and he was very close to Rudy Giuliani, who was, uh, first uh, deputy associate attorney general in the Reagan administration in Washington. Took a demotion and came to New York to become the crusading U.S. attorney for the Southern District. That ultimately he got the reputation as a mob buster, and he went to Gracie Mansion, became mayor, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Louis Free was very close to him, and Louis Free became, you know, uh, FBI director uh, uh, during, uh, you know, after uh, William Sessions, uh, you know, was forced to to withdraw, and uh, so. Louis Free, on Louis Free's watch, uh, there was a guy named Dale Watson, because Mueller only took over, like, right after, or or I think a month or two before 9-11 or something is when Mueller took over. But during Louis Free's watch, this guy Dale Watson, who continued to serve under Mueller as the head of counterterrorism for the FBI, He didn't even know the difference between a Sunni and a Shia during Uh congressional hearings. You know what I mean? He was a total wingtip bozo, okay? (laughs) And so what I'm getting at is I don't know how much, like, if you're a defense attorney and you're, uh, and and here's one of the greatest ironies. You know how I just said a minute ago? you, You can't make this stuff up. A minute ago, what did I say? There were 75 cases in the Eastern District, right? And 14 of them, the guys walked because their yeah. lawyers uncovered this unholy guess who the lawyer was that uncovered the unholy alliance between scarpa and de vecchio guess the, the, who the lawyer is
0: oh man it's you uh, it's okay
3: alan Futafas, the guy don jr just hired
0: oh come on
3: i'm not kidding
0: he's, oh he's my actually
3: i he's a very nice man i i i, I respect him uh i i was on a, i invited him to be on a, a program with me and 2013 when I was interviewed on MSNBC about the Whitey Bulger trial, and he came on. I've always admired Alan and his partner, <laughs> Alan Resnick. You know, they were the ones that doggedly uncovered this corruption by the FBI and to the benefit of their clients who happened to be in the mob, all right? Okay? So, that, But they're good <laughs> lawyers. They're excellent, excellent lawyers. So done. That was one of the smartest moves anybody in the Trump family has made in a long time hiring Alan Fudefax. Now, you could say, well, Fudefax, like, is he the guy that, that uh, Stephen uh, Colbert made fun of last night, about, who advised Don to release the email? Yeah, well, the emails were going to come out anyway. The New York Times is going to publish them. So by releasing them, uh, Trump Jr. comes off as having some level of getting ahead of the story. But I'm just telling you, the reason I brought up Alan Fudefax, and I have nothing but good things to say about him as a lawyer, in my experience, <laughs> is that that's a whole other kettle of fish that all, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is it's very incestuous. New York City, as, as much as Washington is incestuous, incestuous politically, yeah. and when it comes to crime, yeah, New York City, particularly in the five boroughs, is very incestuous in terms of the lawyers that tend to defend these cases, who the clients they have are, et cetera. So it's going to be what I'm praying for, because I'm, a, I'm a, like you, I'm an American, I'm loyal to my country, and I want to see our democracy preserved, and I want to see vigorous a vigorous attack on Russia's ability to manipulate the voting districts. Yeah. They have, I talked about that <laughs> before. I want to see it, but not from this guy that was proposing that, uh, you know, that Putin had the upper hand and the handshaking from Putin is, is dictating to him that they should have a cyber uh, cyber uh, project together. I mean, how absurd can you get, right? It's like asking al-Baghdadi to get together with you on an ISIS, anti-ISIS project. It's crazy, right? So, and Trump withdrew that in a few hours. But, but that's where we are right now. And as much as We should be worried about the truth not coming out on Trump and Russia. We should really, really be worried that nobody in this administration seems to aggressively come up with a plan to attack the Russian influence to the point where Trump, the day before the Russian summit last Thursday, is saying he isn't really, not even sure it existed. And then he's calling the whole Russia-Trump connection a hoax and a scam to this day, a witch hunt. Yeah, amen. I don't know what, I, what, if I came of age as a young person today, if I was in college or I just got out and I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I would, I, if I had a brain and I could put two sentences together, I would, I would become a journalist, man. I'd become a reporter. You know, you are, you are paid to tell the truth. There are very few jobs like that where you get paid to tell the truth. I, I got a law Sometimes. degree along the way <laughs> yeah. from Fordham Law School in yeah. 1978. And, you know, but I never practiced law. It was a good training for me as a journalist. But when you become a lawyer, inevitably you're going to end up with clients you don't like or you don't believe in, but you have to pay the light bill, right? Yeah. Well, there are very few jobs where you can get a salary and (laughs) and kick ass and do some good for the world, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, you know, and in the interest of the First Amendment. I mean, that's a great calling.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well said, Anyway. Well said. Wow. Okay. All right, dude. Listen,
3: that's my recruitment speech for the day. I, I've got a. I got a. Well, we've done almost an hour. I can give you to the end of the like five more minutes. Okay. Is that is that sure. All right? Sure. Sure, man. So ask me anything out of left field.
0: <laughs> anything out of left field. Okay. What's the What's the financial backbone to all of this? Or like, what's the underlying financial backbone here? Do well, want, I'll give you a quick yeah. thing.
3: I'll give you a quickie that Michael Isakov, who's a great reporter, said last night. who writes for Yahoo News and is a veteran investigative reporter. He covered the if you Google Peter Lance in quotes L A N C E plus Patrick Fitzgerald when he tried to kill my book. This, he tried to kill Triple Cross. He spent 20, I forgot to say that he spent twenty wow. months threatening to sue for libel. That limelight. guy, yeah, 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 Michael, yeah, Michael Isakov wrote an article for Newsweek about it. <clears throat> but so I, I really respect Michael Isakov. And last night, this is what he said. Listen to these little dots, okay? okay. okay. The Aragolevs that ran this, uh, uh the, the pageant with Trump in 2013 immediately inked, as they say in, in the trades, they inked a deal with Trump, like almost within weeks, to build a Trump Tower in Moscow right? Uh-huh. They were, like, really moving forward. Trump had this dream for years to have the, the name Trump over the Moscow skyline. <laughs> and all of a sudden, what kiboshed <laughs> that deal? What put the skids on that deal? Why did it not happen? <clears throat> the sanctions over the invasion of Crimea and, you know, oh. and, right? Interesting. That's, Interesting. What, that's what ended up k the Aragalev deal. So, if anybody was motivated <clears throat> to get Donald Trump elected and into the White House, in a position where he could lift the sanctions, like the first person that would want that is Vladimir Putin. The second person probably Rex Tillerson for the reasons I said, and the third person would be Aras Aragilev, the father of Emin, this 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 pop singer. He's, I don't know if you call him a pop star, pop tart, you know, whatever. <laughs> Emin, all right. So okay. think about that. So they are totally <laughs> motivated to want to set up this meeting where this woman is coming in, and her big thing is the Magnitsky Act, which is, you know, Magnitsky was brutally beaten to death. He was in prison for a year, and they found that like he'd been, how many bones in his body when they finally found him beaten to death? Wow. And that outrage provoked this, this uh, Magnitsky Act by both the Democrats and Republicans to, to restrict some of these Russian oligarchs that were, you know, that helped to crush uh, this particular American investor in Russia. And, you know, and here's this woman. She wants to undo that. She wants to unravel that. And, she, and she's, she's representing, according to Don Jr.'s email, she's a government lawyer, you know. I mean, anyway, look at those little dots right there. Look at that motivation when you follow the money. Anyway.
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Dude, all right, man. Thanks for joining the program, Peter. Dude, nice to have you back on.
3: Yeah, just everybody go to PeterLance.com. I don't have a newsletter like like James uh, earlier talked about, but if you go to PeterLance.com and if you if you buy my books or if you go to Investigating Trump, there's a little thing. If you want to make a donation, It's I do this completely pro bono. There's no advertising. Yeah. It's yeah. just doing it for the sake of the truth. So yeah. anybody out there that wants to contribute, uh, it would be greatly appreciated. Okay?
0: Sounds good, man. I'll talk to you later.
3: All right. Great, Ian. You're the best. Take care, brother.
0: All right. Bye. Okay, bye. Peter Lance. Folks, John Perkins, the first hour, 5 o'clock. Okay, came on about 5 uh, 19. Um, whoa. Oh my gosh. Like, seriously, like, uh, the guests on Winwood Radio are incredible. I mean, I, seriously, uh, so Peter. Who just uh, totally opened up uh, some cans there? Some pretty interesting information. Uh he's got five Emmy awards to his name. Okay, he slid in there also a uh, JD from Fordham, which I had mentioned when I opened the program at five. Uh, okay, just like seriously, like if you if you're thinking if you're listening. And you're thinking, who are these people that Ian's talking to? Just give them a quick Google search. Um, and you will realize that the information you have received today at winwoodradio.com or however else you got here is incredible. It's truth, it's accurate. It's happening. It's the world we're living in. So, to backpedal to John Perkins, write these companies. If you have issues with sweatshops in China that are manufacturing Nikes, and I lived in Oregon, so I know that company a little bit, okay, if you have problems with these, with the, with the way they're manufacturing, write them an email. Shoot them a tweet. Just like John said, That's how we're going to change things. You want to boycott the product? Boycott the product. Do whatever you want. But there's other things we can be doing to change how we're living. And again, I'm going back to this again. I'm going to try. I'm trying. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get somebody on the program to talk about the situation in Venezuela, which is absolutely ridiculous. that Something like that is happening. All right, Trump, whether you like him or you don't, he's representing you. And that's dirt that was just delivered to us, that Peter just revealed. That's dirt. Dirt, 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 dirt. Keep digging. Reach out to Peter. Reach out to John. If you want to make change... And if you're listening to my voice right now, you probably do. I'm delivering some great people to you. We're receiving some great information. We're all in this together. They're in this with us. Together, we can make a difference. We will. So for your Wednesday evening and graciously I've uh, been able to deliver some excellent guests your way today. Uh, We went over an hour and I am thankful for that. I'm grateful for that. Um, I next week have an amazing show for you yet again. So we're going to. Shift gears slightly next week to Erin Elizabeth, who has been featured on NBC, CBS, Fox, Mercola.com, David Wolf, The Guardian, HNN, Health Nut News. We're going to shift gears to health next week and talk about how we become healthier. How can we look out for some of these GMOs? How can we make sure we're eating good foods? So we hear Aaron's up too. Followed by Aaron, August 2nd. We joined by Jeff Speck. He'll be calling from Boston. And he'll help us understand how to make our urban areas more walkable. We'll then have Amy Siskind on. Followed by David Cereda, Talk about Egyptian pyramids. Then we got a f- really fun story. Brennan Porter. August 30th. And then bringing in sept- September, we'll have Christina Moss. Local to Miami here. And the drum will continue beating and marching on. Thanks for tuning in. This afternoon. Reach out to me. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. JohnPerkins.org. PeterLance.com. Or InvestigatingTrump.com. Both of those gentlemen have written incredible books. And until next week, this is Discussions. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. And be awesome.